it was an ongoing process. I'll tell you, you know, they told me, they told me to get on my knees and pray and I wasn't going to do it. You know, I, and the first time that my wife walked in, I decided I would try it because everything else they told me was, was working. I might as well try this too. My wife walked in our bedroom and I was on my knees praying. I wanted to crawl under the bed. How sick is that? You know, like all the things that I had done, all the misguided choices I had made, and that's what was embarrassing me. So really, you know, for me, it was a spiritual experience of the educational variety. Over time, I learned more. And as it worked, I, I, I bought in more. So it took time. It took time and it took an open mind. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast, and today we have Brian McAllister joining us on the show. Brian's commitment to helping others recover from addiction and reach their full potential is his life's mission. From a low-bottom, unemployed alcoholic and addict to leading a workforce of 1,800 people. He is a father, he is a husband, he's an entrepreneur, he's the best-selling author of Full Recovery. Brian subscribes to the spiritual axiom that with God, all things are possible. He still maintains an active role in the recovery community through his workshops and as a sought-after motivational speaker on the topic of addiction. These accomplishments are an example of the miracles that have taken place in Brian's life. Miracles he believes can be taught, learned, and duplicated. Brian's got one of the most amazing stories I've had the privilege to record, and this episode is just loaded with value bombs. You don't want to miss this episode. But before we dive into Brian's story, here's a quick reminder that as we get closer to the 100th episode, I would like to invite our listeners to please go to the website and leave us a message on the right-hand corner of the webpage. If you go to www.thesharepodcast.com, on the right-hand side, you'll see a red button that says, leave a voicemail. Click on that button and a little box will pop up that says, start recording. What I would love is to hear feedback from our listeners. The Share Podcast has so many listeners, and some of you have been here almost from the beginning. I'd love to know the impact that Share has had in your life. I'd like to know your favorite episodes or anything else you feel compelled to share about the show. And I'm going to air each one of those recordings on the 100th episode. I would love for all of you to be a part of it. So again, please go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. Click on the red button to your right where it says leave a message and tell us the impact Share has had in your life, your favorite episode, or anything else you'd like to tell me. So we can air it on episode 100. But first, if you would like to know the best way to show your support for the Share Podcast, here are a few ways you can help. First, go to www.thesharepodcast.com, and there you can sign up for our free newsletter, which will let you know every time a new episode of the Share Podcast comes out. You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. If you would like to know other places that you can listen to the Share Podcast, you can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. If you would like to donate to the Share Podcast, you can do so via PayPal, or you can support us on Patreon. We have a thriving Facebook group that grows daily and has massive participation. Again, it's a private group, so if you would like to discuss recovery, share your experience, strength, and hope, help others, or lean on others for support, be sure to join the Facebook private group. And all of this information can be found on the website. So go to the website, and there you will find all the information that you need to help support the show. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, I'm looking forward to it all week. 
All right, man. This is exciting. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling excellent. You know, if I had it any better, I, I wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine that used to say, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. That's how it works. You know, better than I did, than I deserve. How do you like that? You know? Ditto. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, folks, today we have Brian McAllister joining us on the Share Podcast. And Brian is a best selling author, motivational speaker, and the founder of Full Recovery Wellness Center in New Jersey. Brian is dedicated to helping recovering people achieve spiritual, personal, and financial empowerment. Did I get that about right? That's correct. That's it. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I like more, so we might as well go for it all, you know? That's it. <laughs> Ditto again. <laughs> all right. So, you ready to get started? Absolutely. Okay, so let's do this. All right, so first of all, Brian, just take us through your normal daily routine, including recovery. Well, you know, first, it, it's it's a habit I got into very early on. You know, when, once I got past the 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 God issue and and the higher power issue, I made it a daily discipline to to praise before I even get out of bed in the morning. Before my feet hit the floor, I try to get centered. Uh, because I find out that when I don't do that, my day usually starts starts off in a hectic way. And if I can get centered before my feet hit the floor, I'm doing pretty good. So, uh, you know, I, I, I pray, I get ready, I do my morning meditation. And, uh, you know, I, I learn to eat. What a concept. A little breakfast. You know, and the, all, all these things that most people come by normally. You know, I, I, had, I had to learn at the age of 33 years old. So that, that that's really how my day begins. And then from then on, it's so busy, I couldn't even imagine it when I was using because I, I run several businesses. Um, I'm, I'm working in the recovery industry and, uh, you know, I'm married for 39 years to the same woman. I have, you know, a, a son, I have a dog, I have horses, I have a beautiful home. All the things I didn't have, you know, that make a full and complete life. Um, that's pretty much my day every day. I try to be of service and the more I give, the more I, I receive. It's funny. I used to think if I wanted more, I had to take more. Now I realize that if I want more, I have to give more. So that's it. And I also, I belong to a 12 step program and still after 26 years of, uh, you know, continuous recovery and sobriety, I still try to hit a meeting at least five times a week. So I have a full, full, overflowing, abundant life. Dude, you're telling me you still hit five meetings a week with your schedule? Absolutely. And it's cool because I travel a lot. So I get to meet a lot of people in different areas yeah. and, you know, different traditions in different groups, you understand. But, you know, everybody at their core, we're all, we're all trying for the same thing, a, a sober life and, and a quality recovery. I'll tell you, one of my dreams is to be able to do that. You know, I interview a lot of people, a lot of them all over the United States, uh, some of them globally. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of my dreams is to be able to go out and visit some of the people that I interview and even do an, an interview live. You know what I mean? Where they're at. Sure. And then be able to go to their meetings and check out how, you know, their meetings are and jive with, with their fellowship. That and would be just amazing. Yeah, well, you know, you got a friend in Jersey now, so when you get up this way, look me up. Oh, man. I would love nothing more than go to meetings in New Jersey because the people in New Jersey, New York, that kind of yeah. environment, Boston, super yep. animated, super intense. I bet the meetings are just supercharged. Absolutely. You wouldn't be disappointed, I can tell you that. <laughs> so you're telling me you got 26 years, so... When is your actual clean date, your anniversary date? And uh, August 2nd, 1990. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. So if I can pull this off, anybody can pull this off, you know? <laughs> so uh, for tw 26 years, long time, man. So how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Well, I was 12, almost 13. So I actually went on a 20-year a, a run. But uh, – you know, it, it, they describe it in the doctor's opinion in the AA Big Book. You know, I got that sense of ease and comfort yep. that comes from taking the first few drinks. And that's really the, the, the whole deal. I like the effect. You know, I've heard it from a million people. 
You know, I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I never felt comfortable in the world. And uh, once I once I took a few drinks, you know, that was it. And I went instantly from drinking to drugging within within three weeks, four weeks. You know, was that was it. And I chased that for for twenty years. That's incredible. All right. So look, Brian. You know what? You're all warmed up, buddy. So I'm going to just turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So, Brian, take it away. Well, you, you already got the, thanks a lot first, Omar. Um, you got the beginning. You know, I picked up, you know, when I, when I picked up that day, I was, I was uh, hanging with a guy named Goofy and a guy named Butch. So, you know, I wasn't with the Harvard crowd, you know, <laughs> and uh, we are ha- you know, that's how it kind of worked out. And I, we, uh, you know, we went out and we, we got high. And, and again, I just loved it from the get go. I'm, uh, I'm a product of the 60s and the 70s. And uh, when I started drinking, the drinking age in, in our area, I, I lived about 10 minutes outside of Manhattan. So I had no problem jumping a tube. It was 18 year old drinking age. And when you were 13 years old over there at that time, you know, it, this was the American gangster days. People were lining up on the street, copping dope. Um, nobody carted anybody. I started drinking on a daily basis, almost from the beginning. By the time I was 13, 14 years old, I was a daily drinker and a daily drugger. And a typical story in a lot of ways. Um, grades started to suffer, you know, attitudes changed, friends changed. I hung around with a real eclectic group of people, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, what one thing we all shared, whether they were a jock, whether they're smart, whatever, is we all shared that we like to drink. Uh, my family life was kind of a, a strange life. I knew my family was different than a lot of people in my neighborhood. Um, I, my father, I can say he's an alcoholic because right now at the age of 65, he got sober and uh, he's 85 now and he's got 20 years. He never would have made it. He, he was, uh, so like drinking was just a rite of passage. You know, we had, a. Uh, I'm from, I'm an Irish guy from a long line of Irish Catholic alcoholics. Yeah. And, you know, we had the piano in the living room and the holidays, we would be hammered singing, you know, the, the old Irish songs and, you know, they'd be laughing and singing and then they'd be beating the crap out of each other by 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> then, they, then they'd be hugging and kissing and crying by two. And then everybody wake up the next morning, pretend it never happened and started all over again. You know, it was just so that. That not feeling comfortable, not feeling like there was a safe spot started at an early age. And I never heard the word alcoholism. I never heard anything like that. It was just what we did, you know, like birds fly, fish swim, we drank. And that, <laughs> that was the kind of the deal. But I took it to new, a new level with the drugging, you know, so, so that was it. I wound up. Uh, I wanted up bouncing around for a while. And like I said, things got bad at school. I was actually in a Catholic high school because that was the, that was the school in my neighborhood. So I went there and, uh, by the time I was 17, uh, you know, or really my, uh, going into senior year, I was permanently expelled from that school, which really was a big impact on my life. Uh, because it gave me a resentment, you know, about God and that whole deal. I really wasn't buying into it in any way for a long time. And I, and I got the victim thing, like, look at this crap. They tell you to turn the other cheek nonsense and all this other stuff. And the first time you screw up, you know, they throw you out. In the meantime, I'm selling drugs all over the school. I'm getting arrested. I got all kinds of issues going on. My reputation precedes me. But it gave me that, that, uh, it gave me a, a really, uh, a, a good out, like, okay, God, I got this thing now. I'll work this side of the street. The world's my oyster. And that's really what I did. Um, I bounced around for a couple of months. I wound up going back to another public school for a brief time. I graduated at 17 years old, and I took off for parts unknown. Uh, I dropped a hit of acid. I wound up in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I figured I'm there. I might as well stay. And it was really my first geographic. I I did that because I, w- I was trying to leave my problems behind, you know, Everybody in town knew me. The cops knew me. I just needed a, f- a fresh place to go, and I wound up that was as good as any. And the funny thing happened is a geographic, you know, usually does is, you know, within within weeks, I found the exact same people that I had left in New Jersey. I moved in with a couple of guys uh, who were back from Nam. This was those days, and they were like 30 years old, and I was like a teenager. So 
um, they were my first sponsors. Let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> they, they, they taught me what it was like and how to live the life on a whole different level. You know, they had nine names on their mailbox. None of them was theirs. You know, they, they had gambling going on. They were smuggling dope out of Mexico. All these things were this whole crazy lifestyle. And like, I'm admiring them for what, what they're doing. Like, this is the coolest thing in the world, man. We're making money. Life is easy. Things are good. And, and, you know, that really impressed me. I was an impressionable person. And I think this is what I've been looking for. You know, nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, that, that, that defiance that all alcoholics and addicts share, I had a double dose. So this went on for a couple of years on and off. And, uh, I came back to New Jersey and, uh, I married a woman at 19 years old, uh, who I dated in high school, you know, and I told her I was going to take her on the adventure of a lifetime. And I do <laughs> believe that I've lived up to that billing, you know? <laughs> so, so we did the same thing. You know, we moved all over the country. I, I bought a, a 1959 panhead Harley chopped it all out. Nice. We, we went all over the country. We lived in a tent. We lived in a camper. We drove the Harley. We were in California, Arizona, you name it. We bounced around and everywhere I went, you know, times are a little different, you know what I'm saying? But everywhere I went, I found the exact same people in the exact same situations because nothing changed in me. About, um, I guess when my wife was 22, she got pregnant, you know? So at the time, you know, I got hair down on my ass. I'm living the life. I'm, you know, I have, I, in my mind, I have this whole delusional, you know, image of myself that I had been working on my ego and, and, you know, who I was and what I was. And I was an outlaw biker and I had this whole thing going on. Now my wife's like, Hey, look, we've had this life for a while. Like, you know, maybe it's time to get a haircut and, and get a job. This is, uh, you know, this, I'm pregnant, you know, this is really no way to, to be, to be living. So she, she kind of went in another direction, but by now, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a drug addict. I'm a full blown drug addict and alcoholic. I'm a daily drinker. I'm a daily drugger. And, um, and I had really, you know, my, my disease was shifting into overdrive, you know, along the way I picked up a strange habit too, you know, another habit. So I drink, drinking a drug and I found out that I enjoyed totaling cars, you know, I considered it partying, but you know, I, I wrecked dozens of cars. Um, first car I, I wrecked was when I was 17 and was on high street, which should have been a, a, a tip off. I was going down the wrong road <laughs> and I, I broke a telephone pole in half and totaled two other cars at the same time. And I never put two and two together that had anything to do with my drug use, my alcohol use. Because again, my history had been that this is what you did. You know, people drank and, you know, my family drank like that all the time. Everybody I knew was a drug addict. So it seemed like, again, like it says in, in, uh, in the doctor's opinion in the, in the AA big book that, you know, it seemed after a while, the alcoholic life seemed like the only normal one, you know, there was really nothing uh, different about it. So, you know, if things went from the typical story, just it's a progressive terminal illness and I, and I had it big time. And, uh, you know, the time came, my son was about two years old. My wife and I were living in, in Phoenix at the time. And by now I'm, I'm living in a full blown like cocaine psychosis and I'm doing everything I possibly can, you know, on top of that. And I'm parking my Harley in the living room. I'm driving it to the front door and I'm arguing with my wife that she's, you know, she's a stiff. Don't you understand? This is the most expensive thing we own. We got to protect it. I mean, just total maniac stuff. And she finally had enough and she, you know, she tried pleading, arguing, begging, all the things that, that, uh, people, family members do when they see us destroying ourselves. And finally she had enough and I had a decision to make. Was I going to, um, you know, change my life, clean up my act, try to be the husband and the father I'm supposed to be, or was I going to do what I typically did was, which was split, you know, and stay drug addict and an alcoholic. And that's what I decided to do. I gave my wife and my son, you know, that I'm going back to New Jersey. If things work out well, I'll, I'll send for you that whole routine. And I went out with a couple of friends for, on, on the bike, uh, for the last time. And, uh, I got separated from them out in, in the desert, about 40 miles out away from anything outside of Phoenix. And um, I was hammered and I, I had a severe motorcycle accident. I drove my bike off uh, a cliff. I uh, was down at the bottom of this ravine, uh, you know, as coyote bait, as unconscious, as in the desert. Nobody knew where I was. This is pre-cell phone days and everything. But 
I was out like a light and uh, I was in bad shape. A tourist, from what I understand, because I never met the person, but I heard this from the cops from Minnesota that was traveling through, found me. They pulled off on a frontage road to take a leak or something. And they they looked down there and they found me and they drove a couple of miles to a, a payphone, called the troopers. Troopers show up, which is a miracle in and of itself, because there was nothing around there, nobody to find me. It was getting dark. And uh, they helicoptered, helicoptered me into uh, into Phoenix. So here I am. I have a broken back. I have uh, they're gonna. I have uh, multiple compound fractures in my fibula and tibia. Um, you know, broken bones. Uh, uh, Three hundred eighty stitches I took in my head. I have a swollen brain. I got a brain injury. You name it, I, I broke it. Yeah. And, you know, I get to the hospital. So, number one, the first miracle, I didn't realize miracles were happening in my life, but they were. First miracle, somebody found me. Second miracle, so I get there and I'm starting to wake up. I'm coming out of it. So now I'm drunk. I'm in shock. I'm, I'm out of my mind anyway. I'm screaming, yelling, acting like a moron. And, you know, telling them, you know, they're telling me I'm probably going to lose my leg. You know, we're going to probably have to take your leg off. So, you know, that could be perceived as a, as a challenge, you know. So I'm still telling, I'll be tap dancing out of here i'm screaming and yelling and acting like a douche and uh you know acting like an egotistical maniac like 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 i was you know i was living in a godless world at the time and i had was getting godless results but when they closed that little curtain around you in the emergency room you know it was amazing how i forgot all that bravado and that crap i was like holy moly god they're gonna come screaming to god for help they're gonna cut my effing leg off you know what i mean and but when they'd open that curtain, I'd go right back on script about who I was and what I was going to do and all this crap. You know, just like a moron. You know what I mean? It's like this the kind of stuff we do. So then another miracle happens. My wife, the one I told goodbye to, shows up at the hospital. They got a hold of her, and she's, you know, talking to the doctors and trying to save my leg and doing my bidding and everything like that. Um, so finally, uh, you know, they 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 get me. They put me in traction and all this stuff and they tell her listen if we can keep the infection down on this guy you know maybe we can do something so they transfer me to another hospital after a few days i mean the the pain in this thing was incredible i was have it was like a bad acid trip you couldn't come off of because the shot to the head i took you know i didn't you know it was i was i was I was not normal. Right. And, and, you know, then I was, they didn't know that I was a chronic alcoholic. I'm going through the DTs on top of it. So it was just a brutal, brutal time. So they sent me to this other hospital where this doctor fresh out of medical school does this um, operation on my leg. He tells my wife, let me try. Let me, I, you know, he never operated on anybody. I was his guinea pig. He was out of medical school three weeks. And, and he puts 19 four-inch bolts in my leg. He crafts a titanium plate for a shin bone. He glues me all back together and saves my leg. And, uh, you know, it, it was amazing. You would think I'd have gratitude. You would think I would, you know, say maybe I have an issue here, but nothing could be further from the truth. I still didn't put two and two together. I had no gratitude. You know, the physical pain, the inability to walk. It took me years to get off crutches. It was just a whole horror show. And, um, the first thing I did when I got out of that hospital and, and, and got home was throw my crutches over to the stair railing. I was living on the second floor uh, apartment, hop down the stairs on my backside and walk a mile to the bar in 105 degree Phoenix heat because that's how much I needed a drink. Wow. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of alcoholic. Now, you know what's funny? That's commitment. <laughs> you know, most, most people are not able to muster that type of focus, but you know, that's the kind of commitment as an alcoholic and an addict, we are capable of mustering. So, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time that that was a gift. I, you know, I was misusing my gift, but it is a gift because most folks cannot pull together. I was willing to bet my health, my family, my money, my freedom, and any, even my life on, on my lifestyle. Most folks cannot pull that off, but we sure can. So things just got progressively worse. You know, they, of course, they didn't get any better. It's, but, you know, we are creative people. I actually made a, a beer holder for each crutch. So I was able to hop around and drink on the long hop back from the bar. You know, I tried to patent it. I went to the patent, to the patent sending a patent on it. Figured everybody's going to want one of these after they dump their bike. So this is, this is, this is the mindset I had. So things went from bad to worse. You know, it took me six more years of, of 
just misery, bankruptcy, uh, you know, spiritual, emotional, financial, physical, you know, and here I am now, you know, I never thought I'd live to be 30 years old. Talk about having a weak inner dialogue and a conversation. So I figured I'd go out in a blaze of glory, you know, like I'm just going to drink and drug myself to death. So then I'm, I'm, I'm 33 years old. I'm unemployable. We're back in Jersey now. You know, my wife and my son are living a low rent lifestyle they neither wanted nor deserved. And I saw no future, none whatsoever. And one day I woke up in a, in a place called Nutley, New Jersey. I woke up behind a body shop and I hadn't been home for weeks and I had no idea how I got there. And I walked out. It was early in the morning. It was on August 2nd. And I walked out into the sunlight. The sun was shining. And all of a sudden, it was almost like one of those moments where I saw my life flashing before me. All of a sudden, I started thinking of all the horror of the last probably 10 years, 12 years, wrecking the bikes, wrecking the cars, losing my jobs, losing my self-respect, just all the nonsense that comes with an active lifestyle that I used to call partying. And believe me, it was no party, but I told myself it was. I told myself I was getting high. It wasn't getting high. It was a miserable existence. It was it was self-destruction on a grand scale. And I went out into the sunlight, and all of a sudden, when I, I that moment in the hospital when I cried out to God and asked him to save my leg flashed into my consciousness. And I asked God once again, please, God, help me. Help me get over this thing. And, and and it's amazing. When I asked for help, once again, help was provided. And that was the day I made it into treatment. I got into treatment and, you know, I was the guy that hated it. I was never there before. I was the rottenest guy there. Everybody knew me. I was angry and, and, and disconnected. But I made it my mind, that stubborn commitment I was talking about earlier, I made a commitment that I was going to stay there 28 days no matter what happened. And if I didn't make it and it didn't work, I would just go out and continue on and drink myself and drug myself to death. But a funny thing happened. After the 28 days, I felt really good. And I was like, man, how did this happen? I haven't been sober you know, since I was a kid. And, and I realized there was something very – it was almost like an epiphany by following the suggestions of people who knew what I was trying to accomplish. I did what they did and I got what they got. I got sober. So when I left, they said, why don't you uh, try doing 90 meetings in 90 days? Why don't you get a sponsor? Why don't you read this book? So I figured, you know, I was going to do it my way. Number one, I was never going to get a sponsor because, um, you know, I wasn't to tell my, anybody my my all my moves like what you know what did they use them against me on the street you know that deal how could he be honest because, you know, it's, it's just the way I thought you know there was to say there was a lack of trust is, is an understatement right yeah so so I, I didn't do it. so I, I decided okay I'll go to the meetings and I'll do this and I'll, I'll try it but I didn't get a sponsor they suggested I get a job and I was like oh god you know like so I get this menial job on unloading trucks and working for a retailer you know big box retailer so I'm there for a while and all of a sudden I realize I can't do these steps alone. You know, I, you know, they keep talking about the we in the first step and I'm like, we, you know, I, I was always an I kind of guy. So I, uh, I, I realized I couldn't do it. And I was going backwards and it was only a matter of time before I picked up. So I had been watching around and I saw a guy who had, they say, find somebody who has something you want. And that's what I did. I saw a guy who's wearing a back figure. This is 1990. So he's wearing a $500 suit and he's got a Rolex on and he's got a brand new Lexus outside. And he's talking about God all the time. And like, and I was ashamed. I was so, you know, like, I, I, I told you my resentment against God and my Catholic upbringing and getting expelled from that school. So this guy seemed real comfortable with everything. And he had nine years sober, which I thought was a miracle at the time. I even asked him, how do you do it? Right. I got the pat, the pat answer, you know, one day at a time. But, <laughs> you know, he, you know, so he told me to do this and he told me to help him. And this man gave me a lot of advice that, you know, he just didn't take me through the steps. But he gave me advice that would that would change my life, you know. So I'm working at this retailer. I'm working seven days a week. I'm working two full time jobs because I'm trying to uh, work my way out of the, the hole I had dug. I'm trying to provide, you know, be do the right thing by my family, and uh, I'm going to an AA meeting every day or an NA meeting. And uh, I went to him after a few months of this saying, I can't go on like this. I'm working seven days a week. I'm working 80 hours a week and I'm still not able to, to dig my way out of this. And he said to me, he goes, he goes I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you finally said something. He goes, because I've been looking at you, he goes, and, and you don't even realize it. you have a lot of skill sets that you don't even know you had. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, like, for example, what do you think kept you alive on the street all those years? He says, you can read people. 
I said, what do you mean? He goes, you can walk in a room. He goes, I watch you. In about five seconds, you got the room sized up. I can trust this one. I better keep an eye on her over there. This guy behind me needs a punch in the face. He goes, you kind of got, he goes, you, you got that. You know, he goes, they don't teach that at the Harvard Business School. He goes, either you have that or you don't, you know. And then he went on to tell me things about loyalty and, and commitment and, and, and the power of focus. Think how focused as alcoholics and addicts we are. Again, what we're willing to risk, what what commitment. He says, you don't realize it, but you have some faith. I said, what do you mean faith? He goes, you do have faith. And I started thinking about it. I would walk into these tenements, you know, you know, eight stories up in, 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 in Harlem and, and caught my drugs and had faith that I could make it out of there alive. All these things that I had were really gifts that my higher power had given me that I was misusing. And I didn't realize that they were transferable in a lot of different areas. So the guy told me all this stuff and he says, if you put your mind to anything, he goes, you know, you always had goals. You bought a Harley, you traveled the country, you copped your drugs. You know, maybe some of your goals were misguided, but you had goals in your life and you never even realized it. So I pondered what he said and I started realizing it. So I started writing some goals. I write goals. I decided like, you know what, what's, you know, he says, some of your biggest character defects can be your greatest assets when you focus them. So I said, well, what's my biggest character defect? And I said, well, I like more. I like more of everything. You know, too much of everything was never enough for me. So I decided to use that, that, that asset when, when I wrote my goals. I wrote big goals. Like number one is I wrote, I'm going to be the store manager of this place. Now, the, the place had 250 employees and, and did $52 million a year in sales. I got no college degree. I have no experience. I mean, but I figured, what the hell? You know, it, it, I, I didn't have faith I could get sober. I never would have. Maybe I'll put faith in this and see where it leads. So that's what I did. I made a goal for that. The first goal was always the same. I'll get to a 12-step meeting every day. I'll reach my hand out and try to help somebody else out. But they told me if I don't give it away, I can't keep it. And and I would I would take all the suggestions I got. And that's exactly what I did. So, you know, so I... I Nonconformity is really uh, another characteristic all us alcoholics and addicts share. And I had my, I had a whole lifetime of nonconformist type type stuff. So I I use that to my advantage. Rather than trying to undermine my boss and the people and authority where I worked, I went up to them and I asked them for help. I said, "Look, I'm trying to get ahead. I went to the lead man. He was in no big position. I said, "Look, let me let me try to help you. Would you like to get ahead?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, why don't you do this? Delegate your work to me. Show me what you know. You know more than I do, and see if you could take your free time and do that with with your boss." And he said, "Okay." So what we did is I made a partnership with this guy. And I pushed him up the ladder to the next level and he would pull me up behind him. And we did this. And within two years of making those goals, I was the store manager. You know, another goal I had is I wanted to make money. I was sick of being broke. I was sick of seeing my family struggle. I figured I had guys I'm, I'm working for that I should have in my back pocket. And they're telling me how much I'm going to earn, what my family's going to live like, all this stuff, when I'm going to work. I'm thinking, damn, I hate to be told what to do. I'm an alcoholic. So what am I going to do? I'm going to figure out how to use that to my advantage. So I wound up, uh, like I said, within two years, I was running that show. Within five years, I I had, um, I was making, doing $460 uh, million a year in business. And I had 1,800 employees working for me. Jesus. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that to impress anybody, but to impress upon them that if I can do this, Anybody can do this. It's just a matter of looking at what God put in you and, and pointing it in the right direction, staying sober, have enough faith that you can accomplish your task and 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 keep pushing forward. Like the same day, the way I did that is the way the guy told me to get sober, one day at a time. I showed up. I did the best I could that day. I left tomorrow for tomorrow and left yesterday's problems in the past. Within uh, a couple of years after that, I wound up staying sober. You know, it was funny. I'm going to go back. You know, I, I probably sober seven or eight years and all of a sudden here I am. I'm, I've made more money than I've ever seen. I'm, I've got a little bit of, you know, my self-esteem's brimming over. My ego starts going into overdrive and my meetings start going from like seven a week to six to five to four to three to two to one until I make a guest appearance twice a month. You know what I mean? <laughs> I leave I leave early. I come late. All the shit. And all of a sudden <laughs> life hit me with a bag of my own nonsense. You know, but life hit me hard. And uh, the back that I had broke – blew out and I wound up paralyzed in my good leg. I wound up um, 
in in the in bed for almost eight months. Uh, the job that I had, I wound up with problems with them. All kinds of things sort of collapsed, and, and I had faded away from my twelve step friends and my twelve step lifestyle. And I came very close to picking up because I had I had taken over. I found that I'm a lousy higher power even from myself, you know. <laughs> so I had step separates. So. When I finally got up and I got got back, I made in my mind back then that I was never going to go through this again. I was never going to fade away. I was never going to feel like that again, that I was alone and and, and godless again. And I, I've been going to AA and NA ever since then. So what I wound up doing was I, I realized I learned a lot when I on my corporate climb and I decided I'd like to change direction. I went into business for myself. I became an entrepreneur. I started several small businesses, which were very successful. And I enjoyed them all. And it's funny because being a nonconformist and a defiant alcoholic and addict, the more people told me, what do you, you, you know, you can't be a, you know, an investor, a real estate investor. You don't know. You can't risk that kind of money. What do you know about that? You can't be a, uh, you know, I own the construction company. You can't do that. What do you know about construction? You know, over and over. And the more people told me that, of course, the more I was like, you know, the same reason I stayed drink, drunk and, and stoned all those years was people tell me not to do it. So, of course, I went and did it. So the more people did that, the more I moved forward in these businesses and in my financial state. Um, after several years of that, I got out of bed. My sister died of a heroin overdose. When the, when the economy was collapsing back in like 2007, here I am now. I worked my way up into a very comfortable life. Uh, I'm, I'm well, well grounded in my 12 step program. I'm, I'm still married to the love of my life. That woman who I was going to walk out the door. My son is going to college. He's the first person in my family to graduate from college. All these good things are happening. And one day I watch, you know, on the news, everything just collapsed. And I own, you know, tons of property right now. All the stock market empties. And then I started laughing with something. Who ever think a guy like me be worried about? you know, mortgages and stocks and stuff like that. It's certainly not in my history, you know? So I started to laugh, you know I mean? I was like, you know, and then I got a call that a, an associate of mine in business died and then my sister died. And I sat back and I started, you know, what I learned in recovery is to ask myself better questions. I used to ask myself weak questions like, why is this happening to me? How come I never get a break? You know, who thought this guy would be a good boss? How come I can't afford to pay my bills? And in recovery by doing, you know, the steps and, and looking at my life, I learned to ask more empowering questions like, what am I supposed to be learning from this? Which direction am I supposed to be heading? What lesson is my higher power teaching me about this? So rather than get freaked out when I saw all this happening and, and I asked myself a better question and the question was this, if it was my turn today and instead of my friend and my sister died, you know, what if I die? What, what regrets would I take into eternity with me? And I started to laugh as I said, now, I think I've regret not telling people how I pulled it off, how I had this incredible journey has taken me. And uh, I said, well, how would you do that? Well, I would do that. I would like to, you know, I'd, I'd have to write it down in some type of a form, like a book. So then the whole thing started with that. Well, I don't know anything about writing a book. I can't type. I have none of these skills. But then I thought about it, you know, I, I didn't know how to get sober at one time. Heck, heck, I didn't know how to use a toilet at one time. But with, <laughs> but with a little a little coaching, you know, and the ability to stick with it, I figured it out, you know. And everybody else on the, in your audience right now did too. So I didn't let that stop me. And I went out there and I wrote a line in a book and I stuck to it. And of course, the more people told me, you'll never get it published. Nobody will ever buy it. What makes you think you could do it? The more I stuck with it. Make a long story short. I wrote a number one bestseller on Amazon. Um, and then when that happened, people start calling me up. The book isn't just about me. It's really a program of action. You know, how do you practice the principles in all your affairs? How do you practice them in your relationships, in your finances, in your career, in your spirituality? It's that type of a book. So, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of stories about different people that I know and, I, and I've been blessed to meet along the way. And, it's, and it talks about that. But it's also got a component to it that gives – really uh, in-depth instruction uh, uh, for people, the right questions for them to ask themselves and how they can get there too. So it's not just a feel-good book. When you're done, you'll have a plan of action, you'll have a new course in your life, and you'll have the, the skill set needed to turn it into reality. But it's without action. And I learned that in the steps too. Without take, you know, it's a program of action, they told me. And that's that's transferable in everything in my life. So from that book, wound up, uh, I wound up running into a friend of mine from from high school. He had read the book and he was sober too. 
and we hadn't seen each other in 30 years. And he wound up, he became wildly successful on Wall Street. He came from nothing and he, he wound up riding the Wall Street boom. And when it all collapsed, he wound up, you know, almost drinking and drugging himself to death. And uh, we sat down over a steak sandwich and talked about our lives. His sister had died just like mine had died. So our lives had paralleled each other in many ways. And uh, we decided we'd like to see what we could do about helping other folks not go down the same road. So we wind up opening uh, the Full Recovery Wellness Center, a treatment center. And what we do there is try to pass along what we've learned and some of the blessings because we've both been blessed to not just stay sober, but to have a full an abundant life. And and that's really what it's all about for me today is is how can I be a service? Who can I help? What, you know, what plan does my higher power have for me today? And and getting sober and and, and living this lifestyle has has really helped me to become almost fearless because I know at a gut level that I'm never alone that that my higher power is closer to my breath. And, and guiding my steps. And that's how I talk to myself instead of talking to myself like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'll never get out of debt all the ways I used to. So it took time and it took and it took effort. But it's been it's been it's been an exciting adventure. You know, it's been the journey of a lifetime. And uh, and I truly consider myself blessed. That's pretty much that's That's a rough idea what I do. <laughs> In a nutshell, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I I got a great gig going, and and I thank God every day for it. It's a miracle. Your story is amazing, um, and you know, there's so many takeaways. You jam pack so much information, but like good actionable information into your story, which was it's so important. I know that as a kid growing up. There were so many limiting beliefs that were instilled in me, uh, you know, mainly from my parents. Uh, sure. But, but from there, I would give myself these limiting beliefs. And they're so, you know, we're as addicts, we're riddled with character defects. But one thing is for sure, we are some tenacious, driven animals, <laughs> like beasts. It's so Absolutely. true what you were talking about. Like, as you were getting into your story, I could so relate with that whole idea of, you know how this is in the, you know, coming up in my story, this is how I get out of it. It's just my drive. It's my tenacity. I'm out there. I'm hustling. I'm trying to make things happen. I'm trying to get my drugs, trying to get my alcohol. You know, I'm, I'm doing all these things where people are telling me, you can't do this. I'm going to do it. And so it's just so much for those of us who have tapped into that. When we get mm -hmm. into recovery, we can use that same tenacity to pull ourselves out of it and then propel ourselves into these amazing lives. Absolutely. You know, and that's it. The, the, like, like that first guy told me, my biggest character defects could be my greatest assets. You know, part of it, though, for me, just is, is I had it. I had to humble myself. I had to get down. I'll, I'll tell you something else. Like when, when he, he started telling me this guy, well, you got to pray. You got to find a God of your understanding. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, you know, I, I was looking at the God of my youth. So he sat me down. He says, you know, well, let's, let's, let's look at it this way. He goes, if you, if you could say what, what a God or a higher power should be, what, what, what were the traits it would have? You know, and I, oh, it'd be loving. It'd be forgiving. It'd be supportive, all stuff. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. He says, here, go hang this on your mirror. That's your God. Is a God of your understanding, and I thought it was, it was such a simple concept, you know, that I I never would have I never would have got it without hearing it from somebody else. Man, and, uh, you, know, you know, real real quick, real quick, I just got goosebumps yeah. because I have I have said those exact same words being interviewed before myself when there I was asked about my relationship with a higher power. You know, I had walked away from God for close mm -hmm. to twenty years. And when it came time for me to connect with a higher power, my sponsor told me the exact same thing. And I wrote down the exact same thing. It's if you can just connect with that whole concept of a higher power, a loving, forgiving, empowering God that's always got your back, that's always there supporting you, is not punishing. It's completely contrary to what we learned growing up. I can yep. get behind that all day long. Yeah, me too, man. And and it's it and it gives you 
it gives me instead, instead of that synthetic courage I used to used to use, you know, to it gives me a sense of of uh, inner power. You know, I, by admitting I was powerless, I gained the power of choice. I gained the power to to influence the world around me. I gained the power to possibly help somebody else out. So all these things, I had it all backwards. You know, I had like most things in life, I, I had it backwards, but. Thank God I became an alcoholic and an addict because I never would have found this sense of serenity, peace, and and ultimate you know success without going down that road. I paid my dues, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, um, I forget sometimes the power of goal setting and the power of asking yourself the right questions, which is something that you just brought up. It's something that I've been doing for years. It's uh, the reason why I'm sitting in the chair that I'm sitting in right now. It's the reason why I'm married to the woman I'm married to right now. It's because I started setting goals when I got into recovery, and I started asking myself better questions, more empowering questions. Um, and recently, because you get into a place where things are good. I mean, things are really good. And so I stop asking questions, and I stop setting <laughs> goals, man. You know, yeah. and and so I've just subconsciously and inadvertently set a ceiling for myself. And, yep. and I just and, you know, this interview was for me. That's my takeaway that I need to go back to my goal setting. I need to write things down. I need to look at them. I need to ask those better questions. And it allows my allows me to subconsciously refocus all my intentions you know, so so I'm I'm right there with you, bro. Like I'm, I uh, you know, laser focused right now, um, <laughs> and you know. But what I want to talk a little bit about before before I deviate, yeah, the full recovery wellness center. When did that start? How long's that been going on? You know, uh, what was the catalyst to, to get that movement started? Well, it actually came from the book. I wrote the book, and people started calling me up about the program in the book. And they said, hey, you know, I, I had a guy, I had a Hollywood director call me, a famous guy, and say, I'd like you to, and I'm working for for Universal, and I'm not happy, and, you know, and all this other stuff. And I had a couple of really, you know, people who would be considered higher-powered people, you know, not higher-powered, but high-powered people in our, you know, what, what we consider a success, I guess, in, in, in our society. Right. But he says, you know, I'm not happy. You know, I, I want to go out myself. I want to do independent films. I really like to work with it. And I said, well, hey. You know, I, I take you through the book, but what am I going to do? Take you, take you here and put you in the Newton Holiday Inn for three months? You know, what I mean, it's not, it's not, not going to work. You know what I mean? So first, I got, I got, a, I, you know, again, I prayed over God. What do you want me to do? What I should be doing with this? I fly back. I'm, I'm on the West Coast. I fly back, and uh, somebody calls me up, and says, "You know what, Brian? I know you used to buy houses and all this stuff. I know a guy. He, he he's got a vacant house. It's on a hundred acres. It's like a mansion." I go there the day I land after this conversation and somebody shows me his house. Make a long story short, the guy makes me a great deal, gives me time to do it. So we start a little house. Where we're bringing people in and we're teaching them the program and the book. From there, my, my, my partner, who I said I used to get high with in high school, says, why don't we, why don't we become a, you know, a licensed treatment center? But we want to do it right. So like we're a holistic center. You know, We provide different things that a lot of places don't. We're an outpatient deal. And uh, we've been open for, for five years now. But anything you would get at like a high-end facility, you would get there. Like we, we treat people a lot. A lot of addicts and alcoholics have PTSD. So we, we give them uh, EMDR for treatment for that. We, we do hypnosis. We do a lot of different things that typically you wouldn't get when you go to a, 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 an outpatient treatment facility, an IOP or something like that. So we try to give people ways of dealing like here, like I told you, the you know, I've taken a terrific beat and I'm still paying for it. I've had several surgeries on the one leg and, you know, I, I told you some of my history. I take no painkillers. You know, I've learned different ways of dealing with pain that are, that are holistic and, you know, meditation prayer. Hey, here's an example. Now that I don't drink or drug, I have enough money for a hot tub. So I can sit, I can sit in hot water at night. You know what I mean? It was a month giving all my money to the man. So hundred percent true. Yeah. So like stuff like that. So we try to give, give folks an opportunity to not just get sober. You know, that's just the, that's just the, that's just the, the volley. That's just the opening the door. How do you practice the principles and all your fair? Because if you can get my life so good, 
the last thing I want to do is drink or drunk. You know what I mean? I have, I have so much, I don't have enough time in the day. I get to influence the world around me. I get to travel. I get to spend quality time with my beautiful wife. And, and, you know, I, I have so many things going on right now, but I had to substitute something for that. In the beginning, I had to take it on faith that it would happen. You know what I mean? And think about the word faith. I'm not even talking about religious faith. Faith just means to expect. You expect something to happen. I had to train my mind over time to start expecting better things to happen. Nice. And whatever I direct my focus towards becomes my reality eventually. Man, I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, I'm actually writing all this shit down. And it's, yeah. just, you know, it's like, hey, yeah. I feel like I'm at a seminar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. I should send you a book. I'll send you a book when we get done. You have to give me your address. I'll get it out to you. you know? that's, that's right after this interview I'm sending it. Um, this is, I love it, man. Listen, Brian, I, I know my listeners like me, uh, can connect with you on so many different levels. Please tell our listeners how they can find you, how they can reach out to you, the name of your book, all of it. Sure. It, thank, thank you. It's, it's full, it's full recovery. The recovering person's guide to unleashing your inner power. And that's, and that's the name of the book. And, you know, I, I run the full recovery wellness center in Fairfield, New Jersey, and it's nine, seven, three, two, four, four, zero, zero, two, two. And, uh, you know, our website is, is www.fullrecoverywellnesscenter.com. I give, I send out free, you know, video messages almost every day. So if you want, if you need a little extra inspiration, we do everything we can like they say in a 12 step program, you know, the, the thing doesn't do, the book doesn't do any good in the shelf. So <laughs> what, what we, what we do is we try to send out as much information as we can. Um, even if you're not in this area, you know, we refer people all over the, all over the place, all over the country. And, uh, you know, we, we do our best to give back because that's really what, it, what it's all about. And the more we give, the better, the better it is for us and the better it is for the people we get to touch. So anybody needs any help. Or they just want to call me up, I'd be happy to talk to you. I love it. Every folks, I'm gonna have all this information listed on the show notes, the website, the book, all of his information, contact information. Uh, so it's very simple for you guys to get a hold of Brian. Um, wow, Brian. I mean, listen, we could go on and on uh for days because I'm just loving this this interview, my brother. Well, uh, thanks, <laughs> it's been great. Uh, but we're gonna start to wind down now. And okay. the way I like to do that is to close for the newcomers. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with insightful and inspiring answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do this. Number one, initially, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, my outdated and misguided habits of thought and action. I, I, I had more habits than just drugs and alcohol. I had a habit of the way I communicated with myself and the world around me. And I had to let go absolutely and open my mind to a new level of possibility or it never would have happened. Beautiful. I love it. And number two, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? It happened when I left, when I left treatment because I was amazed that I, I actually had 28 days sober. I, it, it was an ongoing process. I'll tell you, you know, they told me, they told me to get on my knees and pray and I wasn't going to do it. You know, I, and the first time that my wife walked in, I decided I would try it. Because everything else they told me was was working. I might as well try this too. My wife walked in our bedroom and I was on my knees praying. I wanted to crawl under the bed. How sick is that? You know, like all the things that I had done, all the misguided choices I had made, and that's what was embarrassing me. So really, you know, for me, I had a, it, it was a it was a spiritual experience of the educational variety. Over time, I learned more. And as it worked, I, I, I bought in more. So it took time. It took time and it took an open mind. Man, you know, I never had anybody walk in on me when I was on my knees praying. But I remember, man, so early on in recovery, I spent a lot of time on my knees, man. And it wasn't yeah. just, I mean, first of all, my sponsor told me, you know, you go home, 
Well, you get up in the morning, you get on your knees, you pray, you ask God, you know, to help you stay clean just for today. Then you get home, you get on your knees again, you thank God for another day clean. So those were those two two moments every single day, absolutely, when I was on my knees. And I always, I remember the first few times just feeling so uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Because I was powerless, man, like vulnerable. You know, yeah. That just, it's a feeling that, man, I've never done this before, right? Yeah. I, I just, res- the resistance. And I'll tell you what, once I caught hold of this, there would be moments where my days would be just falling apart, unraveling. I'd go to the bathroom, close the stall, <laughs> get yeah. on my knees, be uh-huh. like, God help me, God help me, God help me, God <laughs> yeah. help me. I remember these like it was yesterday, yeah. man, or or just, you know, crying, like not being able to stop crying and then going in the bathroom, putting a towel on my face so I wouldn't hear myself crying. You know, yeah. it, you know, it just it brought me back to those moments where it's so it's so embarrassing, right? In the beginning. And then you realize it's so liberating. Absolutely. It's empowering. You know, the paradox through admitting you're powerless, you get the power of choice, you get the power of 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 fearlessness. You get all these 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 and the power of being sober. It's it's amazing how it works. Like I'd like to share something real quick. You know, you're talking about when you really realized it worked. For the first couple of years I was in recovery, every time I, I was at a meeting and I heard somebody that was lucky enough to come back in. You know, I I'd wait for them after the meeting and say, you know, what, you know, what was the last thing you thought of before you picked up? And, you know, usually they'd start out with an excuse or something like, well, my wife broke up with me or my job ended or this happened. And I would just keep asking the question. No, no. What? You know, I get them to the point where what was the very last thing that went through your head before you put it in your mouth or stuck it in your arm or whatever your deal was? And to a person, they all gave me the same answer when I got down to it. And that answer was F it. Fuck it. That's what they would tell. I would go home at night. And I'd get on my knees and say, "Oh God, don't ever let me get a case of them." You know, <laughs> whatever it is, anything but that. And whenever I, you know, when I get angry, sometimes I would say a word like that or something like that, and then I'd be like, "Just kidding," you know what I mean? I don't ever want to get get a case of the efforts because when I get a case of the efforts, it's really f me because that's what happens. I hurt myself. It's true. You get the, you know, in my podcast, I say it, you know, you get the case of the fuckets, right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. I didn't know how foul you wanted to get, but, you know, <laughs> that's it. But uh, that's, in, in layman's terms, that's exactly what it is, you know? You know, and you really, there's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more humbling. There's nothing more connecting. When you're on your knees, yeah. you know exactly why you're there. You know exactly what you're doing. And it's impossible for you to think about or wander off anywhere else because you're in that moment. You know, my 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 uh, first wife and I are divorced, uh-huh. uh, so I'm remarried. And every other weekend, my daughter stays with me. She's 13 years old now, nice. and we still, before she goes to bed at night, we still say our prayers together. She actually says a prayer, and I, you know, I and I get on my knees in front of her bed. This is something we've never even, she's never asked me why I do it. It's been an unspoken thing that we've done for years. That How is, beautiful is that, right? It, it's absolutely the most beautiful thing, man. She's like, hey, Dan, I'm going to bed. And I'm like, all right, let's go do your prayers. You know, and then we go in, I turn off the light, she gets into bed, I get on my knees, she says the prayers, and we go out. And I'll tell you, man, you know, as, as, as long as I can keep that going, I plan to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't blame you, man. That is that is a beautiful, beautiful thing, and 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 you're blessed that you can, you can share those moments with your daughter. Yeah, man, I'll tell you because I tell you what that now that she's 13, they change fast, <laughs> <laughs> quickly. Yeah, exactly. So tell us, Brian, what is your favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer early in recovery? Uh, I I would have to. Say- Call me, call me old fashioned. Stick with the classics. The AA Big Book didn't hurt me much. You know that that, that was good. And you know I like Emmett Fox. You know he's got several several good books. Everybody knows Sermon on the Mount, which is which is a wonderful book. But you know, the, and of course, full recovery. You know, yes, you got <laughs> Don't be you afraid know, but, to plug the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't can't forget that. But no, I I really believe that because. I still go to a big book meeting every week and every time I, I've read it many, many times, but every time I show up, I'm in a different place. I get something different out of it. You know, I read a lot of spiritual stuff. 
and I'm never disappointed, even if I'm just hearing something that I already know confirmed. So it, it's the best thing I've ever done for myself. Beautiful. I love it. All right. So, Brian, number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Besides don't drink and go to meetings, I would have to say, I guess that the suggestion that that guy gave me that my, my greatest character defects are really my biggest assets when I focus them intelligently, when I combined the uh, the moral and ethical standards needed in, in, in the 12-step world with my God-given ability to focus and take action, which was always in me. I took a lot of misguided action, but it was always in me. When I combine those two things together and point them at a goal, there's no stopping me. Beautiful. I love it. And number five, finally, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Have fun. Learn how to have fun in recovery. If you can't have fun, you will probably won't stay. It takes some time to get your brains out of hock. It takes some time to figure out what you like to do. But that's an important component. You have to have people that you enjoy being with and figure out what your God-given gifts are. We all have a purpose that the world is sorely in need of. When you figure that out, when you get in touch with that and you take daily steps towards achieving it, you'll know peace. You'll really know what life's the juice of life. And the last thing you want to do is dribble on yourself, sit in the corner and drift away like I used to do. Oh, man. Absolutely powerful, man. This interview has been amazing, Brian. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for having me, Owen. Thanks to all your listeners. And I wish everybody a, a sober, clean day. Beautiful, beautiful. Folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. And I love Costa Rica. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.